It's my intention to uh, uh, deal with Muhammad and the birth of Islam in the first uh, 30 years or so where it conquers uh, already much of, of what we call the Middle East and Northern Africa. And uh, uh, we'll deal with, uh, it's interesting, the major schisms that, that still affect what's going on in Iraq between the Sunnis and the Shiites. And these are things that have their genesis in the early part of, of the, the Islam movement. And so my intentions next week is to focus on uh, Muhammad, uh, the birth of Islam, and the early growth of it in ways that help us understand also what's going on today. Uh, uh, the Muslim faith is not the Christian faith, and this is church history, but the interactions between Islam and Christianity will be huge. One of the main things we will look at in the Middle Ages as we get into the Middle Ages in the weeks to come uh, are the Crusades and uh, other things that interacted between the two religions. So I tell you that because I hope it is of interest to you. It should be of interest to all of us. Uh, uh, and I will try to, to approach it in, in a, a good, fair, uh, a Christian manner. Um, uh, and so I would appreciate your prayers as well. But also, if you're interested, those classes will be coming up uh, uh, in the near future. Um, once we get through the Middle Ages, there are a few things that we'll deal with. Uh, I still owe you a class on uh, uh, church architecture, if you will. Uh, uh, that's one I continue to kind of work on, but, but you know, our, this is a Bible study class, and we don't want it to be a class that evolves into, gee, here are pictures of all of these churches. That's of no use to anybody. But it is interesting how the faith itself changed and how worship services changed as architecture came into the church and the church left a house church setting, uh, which it was in the New Testament, and went into uh, uh, different uh, uh, building phases, if you will. And so I owe you that. I also owe you one on art, which I recognize, and I owe you one on, on music, which I recognize. But each of those, to fill a class, really, we need to get a little more history. And then we'll look at, for example, how music has changed from what was probably done in the early church to what's been done since. So that's where we're headed. But this morning, we're going to talk about Gregory the Great. And it's kind of uh, interesting for me. We're getting into an era where names... Uh, are actually names we've heard of in the sense that we still use today. I think probably all of us know a Greg or a, a Gregory somehow in our lives. And uh, we're starting to see much more of our culture and, and even more of our language starting to appear in the church. And we'll look at that some today. Um, if we consider that the church goes from 33 A.D. to 600 and that that's what we've looked at in essence so far... We, we put this into a perspective by remembering that in 33 A.D., the Roman Empire really was everything as far as civilization that we consider civilization in America to have been. There's an entire civilization going over uh, uh, in the Asian area of the world that we haven't yet addressed in this class. Uh, uh, but, but within Western civilization, the entire civilization that we have much history on was the Roman Empire at the time the church starts. And then here comes the little church. And the church starts out in 33 AD. And it's just a small speck of people in a little backwater area of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire, if you had asked people, would be what's going to be there forever. And the church is in danger with a few thousand people at Pentecost of dying out. 
But what history has shown is where God was. And God was in the church. And so while the Roman Empire starts to crumble over the next 600 years and becomes a shell of what it was, the church itself grows and in essence takes over where the empire had been and even goes beyond the bounds of the Roman Empire, goes much further than it. In the process of that, we've had what history has called fathers of the church. And the church fathers are those those people who were, were foundational within the church. And they stem from the early church itself right after the apostles. And the last, if we were historians, theological historians, the last of the church fathers, uh, at least in a Western church mentality, is Gregory the Great. If you recall, if you've been here for the classes, in the Western church there are four great doctors of the early church. And we've studied them, and, or we've studied three of them, uh, but the one that we have not studied yet is Gregory the Great. He's the last of the church doctors. And so that's what we study today. Uh, by doctor, of course, we do not mean um, a medical doctor. Uh, what we mean, in fact, is a teacher, like a doctor of philosophy, that type of a doctor, a Ph.D. type doctor. And so this is what we have today, Gregory the Great. Now, where I'd like to start with him is just his general upbringing so that we understand who he was, and then we're going to look at what he had to say. He's not called the great because they were just sitting around looking for a label to give him that started with a G, okay? You know, know, if he was Larry, he wouldn't have been Larry the loser. He'd have been Larry the great, okay? The great is because of who this guy was, and he truly was a phenomenal guy. He got a a ton done in his life. Now, he wasn't, he, he, he wasn't gifted in all areas, but he was gifted in a whole bunch of them and got a whole lot done with the time God put him here on earth. Uh, I would call him Gregory the Great, no problem. Okay? Let's start with his upbringing. Um, if we look at his heritage, his family tree, he had a really good Christian upbringing. Good Christian heritage. He's, his great-great-grandfather was a pope. Um, I got an email from someone who edits my lessons and says, I thought popes were celibate. Well, they didn't always have to be celibate. That's come in the last 1,500 years or so. They're celibate by the time of Gregory, but not when his great-great-granddad was the pope. Uh, so his great-great-granddad was a pope. Uh, his father was a big uh, Roman Yahoo to-do type guy, man about town. They had a lot of wealth. They had a lot of money. They lived on it's called Caelian Hill uh, uh, in Rome, which is kind of like the River Oaks of the time. It was a real posh neighborhood uh, uh, in, uh, where the old-time money, richy rich people lived. And uh, yet his father and his mother and his three sisters were all devout Christians. So he's raised in a Christian home with Christian atmosphere. As I indicated to you, he had a lot of money growing up. His family did. And with a lot of money came a lot of privileges. He dressed in really good clothes. He had like purple. He had gems and, and you know, he'd been the kind of guy that wore cufflinks just to have the cool looking cufflinks. He had the, you know, spectacular clothing uh, 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 that came as part of his money. Uh, also with all of that money comes, of course, uh, at the time, a good education. Now, when I say a good education, he was a student supposedly second to none when it came to things like uh, rhetoric, which is arguing and giving speeches, when it came to things like grammar, 
Um, uh, he would have been the exact opposite of me. I was horrible at grammar. Um, uh, I ain't got no good English still today. And, um, but uh, uh, he, he was second to none when it came to grammar. Um, uh, he had a lot of legal studies. He was a, a, a studied uh, law and, and did quite well at that as well. Um, what his education lacked, interestingly, at this point in Roman civilization, is he didn't study Greek. And so he had no knowledge of all of the Greek stuff and also they, no science, no real science and stuff. So he, he didn't think in terms of science and he didn't think in terms of culture and other languages, but within the framework of Latin... And, and, and grammar and, and rhetoric and law, uh, uh, that kind of stuff. He was a really good student. He was brought up in a time of great danger and crisis. Uh, uh, if you'll recall our classes, the Goths kept invading Italy. Well, in addition to the Goths, yeah, that's kind of a dark slide. Sorry, I had trouble finding. Those are supposed to be Lombards. Uh, the Lombards were the, 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 the tour of, of, or the, the, the people of problem for the Italian peninsula at this point in time. And the Lombards were coming down and they were uh, uh, savage and, and, and uh, very brutal in their invasions. The, when the Goths would invade, the Goths were kind of like uh, invading to enjoy the privilege of living in Italy. You know, I can remember when I was a kid, I read somebody talking about the Russians will never invade America because the moment the Russians land on on the shore of America, they will all drop whatever they're holding and run to Disneyland as fast as they can because, uh, you know, they, they so want to get out of Russia. They'd be coming here not to destroy us and conquer us, but to enjoy us and be one of us. I don't know if that was true or not. But I will tell you that the Goths would come into Italy and they would come in to, in essence, absorb it and become the ruling elite, but keep the Italian culture. The Lombards would come in and they would destroy everything in their path. They were Sherman marching to the sea. They weren't there to enjoy the culture. They were there to annihilate what was in front of them. And so the Lombards were, were very, very difficult. And, and uh, uh, Gregory grows up in Rome at a time where there were constant attacks. There was constant turmoil. There was a fear. He lived in a war-torn country. Um, Later in his life, he's still, uh, uh, I think, at probably at this age, a teenager, his parents take a different turn. And instead of living the life of luxury and the life of wealth that they had, they kind of turn away from that. They leave their kids a lot of money and property, but the parents go into the ministry. The dad dies, the mom goes and lives as the life of a widowed nun, if you will. And when the dad dies, it has such a conviction upon uh, 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 um, Gregory that Gregory himself makes the same turn. He sells basically everything they've got. They've got a bunch of land in Sicily. He converts it into six monasteries. Their great house on the Caelian Hill in Rome, the River Oaks. He turns it into a monastery and becomes a monk and basically gives away everything he has to the church. And says, I'm going to live a life of poverty. The, one of his biographers, uh, uh, who's a contemporary of his, of Gregory's, writes that Gregory was real interesting. One day you see this guy walking around in Xenia clothes, you know, with uh, all of the, the or whoever's a big time, was polo. And he's walking around wearing his polo toga. 
with all of his jewels. And the next day, you see him walking the streets wearing the, the monk's garb, which is, is uh, uh, purposefully designed in a way to, to show uh, an appreciation of poverty and the possessions of basically nothing. You know, it doesn't, you, you never see a monk's robe that's got flashy tie-dyed purple color. It's always drab and it's always uh, uh, not to draw attention. And, and this was a radical change, and he made the change. His house, as I told you, he turned it into a monastery. You can still go to the Callian Hill, and you can find uh, uh, the, the current edifice with building was probably built on the remains uh, of, of uh, the original house. But it's still there. I mean, this was the property, at least, I should say. And, and supposedly, at least one or two of the walls are still present where you can see them. Um, now... That's what's going on at Gregory's house, life. Meanwhile, back at Monte Cassino, you all remember that? If you were here last week for Benedict, the rule of Benedict, okay, this was his Benedict's big monastery about 40 miles outside of Rome. Well, the Lombards have come, and the Lombards are wiping out Benedict's monastery. I mean, they're just, they wipe it out. All the monks have to flee. The monks head to Rome hoping that they can survive there. It's very interesting. Do you know what happens when the Benedictine monks who have the rule of Benedict go to Rome because their monastery's been uh, ransacked by the Lombards? Do you know what they take with them? The rule of Benedict. And these monks are looking for a monastery to hang out in. So where do you think they go hang? Gregory's Monastery. So Gregory becomes familiar with the rule of Benedict, becomes familiar with the people who knew Benedict himself, and all of the things almost that I taught you about Benedict and his rule came from the biography of Benedict written by Gregory. Gregory is blown away by the Benedictine rule, blown away by what Benedict did within his monastery. And not only takes it and incorporates it within his own monastery, but uses it to, to influence monastic life throughout the Western civilization. Now, Gregory likes living in his monastery, but the Pope comes to pay him a visit one day. And the Pope says, hey, you enjoying your monastic life? And he says, yes. He says, you know, one of the vows you've taken is obedience. He says, and Gregory says, that's right. He says, good, because you've got to be obedient now, and I want you to leave. You're going to be my ambassador over in Constantinople. And Gregory says, uh, uh, I don't want to. But he may not have said that out loud because this is like the Pope, right? So maybe he just says it internally. But he makes it real clear he didn't want to. He kind of likes what he's doing, but he's got no choice. The Pope says, jump. You say, how high? And you go, right? So off he goes to Constantinople. Now, this is a church, uh, Hagia Sophia. It's the main church at this point in time in Constantinople. But unfortunately, the cameras didn't work back then. So this is a modern picture, which explains some of the cars and things. It also explains these minarets. They don't belong there. They were added by the Muslims once the Muslims conquered it and turned it into a mosque. So you got to take those out to kind of feel the moment. But here is where, for the next six years, Gregory spends his time. While he's there, Gregory has a big fight with uh, uh, the patriarch, the... 
the bishop of Constantinople over what the resurrected body's like because the patriarch of Constantinople thinks the resurrected body's all uh, fuzzy and ethereal and you can't touch it and there's nothing physical to it. It's just a spiritual body. Gregory says, no, it's physical. That's why Jesus says, here, stick your hand in my side. He says, when we're resurrected in the second coming, or I mean, in, 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 in the life to come, we will have a physical body. Uh, it won't be physical, uh, frail physical and imperfect physical like we have now. It will be a perfected physical body like Adam and Eve had before the fall. And that's the glorified body. So they had this big knockdown drag out. The guy from Constantinople writes a book. Uh, uh, Gregory speaks out against him. Uh, Gregory, meanwhile, is holding seminars there where he's, uh, by the way, the emperor over there ultimately agreed with Gregory and ordered the book had to be burned. Um, the, uh, Gregory's also holding seminars on the book of Job where he brings in all the different uh, clergy and he teaches the clergy out of the book of Job. And that ultimately becomes a book which is the largest uh, uh, book written uh, at the time probably. Uh, um, after six years in Constantinople, I've digressed. After six years in Constantinople, uh, uh, Gregory gets to return to his monastery for the next five years. He says, that's the best five years of his life. But I got to tell you, in Rome, there are major problems going on. There's massive, uh, now a test is about to come, so you all got to pay attention to this. There's massive flooding. The Tiber River rises. It floods and when it floods, it not only floods a bunch of homes, it floods the granaries that are storing the corn and the food for the Roman citizens. The floods are horrendous. In addition to the floods, there are uh, uh, wars that are going on. I mean, the wars have really intensified. And not only are there wars going on, but you know what else? There are rumors of even more wars. Okay? Now, what do you think happens when the food supplies are wiped out and there's war going on and there's flooding? You know what follows? Inflation. Prices are going through the roof. You can't afford a loaf of bread. Uh, uh, and as if this isn't enough, there seems to be a distinct uptick in the earthquakes that are happening in the region. And if that's not enough, do you know what else comes? The plague. The bubonic plague, the black death, and people are dying right and left. In fact, it kills the pope that precedes Gregory as pope. Now, Gregory puts two and two together, and what do you think he comes up with? Gregory is convinced the second coming is right around the corner. Because if you go back and read Matthew 24 where Jesus talks about the signs of the second coming, you're able to rattle off, and, 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 and Gregory preaches a sermon on it. We've got the sermon. And he rattles them off. We've got wars. We've got rumors of wars. We've got these natural, natural disasters. we got all... He says about the only thing we're missing is the sun, moon, and stars changing. And based upon the changes in the weather, I think that's coming right around the corner, he says. So we are standing and he preaches, you change your life because Jesus is coming back any day now. And you'll be in front of the judgment seat of God. So this is uh, what he's preaching. Jesus is coming back soon. Uh, the Black Death, the bubonic plague, kills the current pope. And Rome and, and the church turn toward Gregory to become the next pope. And so on September 3rd of 590, Gregory the Great, at about the age of 50, he's probably born around 540, we don't know for certain, Gregory becomes pope. He does not want to be pope. 
He tries not to be Pope. He writes letters, please don't make me Pope. I don't want to be Pope. I like my life. He said, right now, I lead a life of leisurely freedom. He's a monk. Oh, don't get me wrong. You can go and, and every day he would, he would find 12 people out in the city who were poor and he would bring 12 people to his home for lunch and he would personally serve lunch for 12 poor people every day as part of his ministry. But this to him was leisurely freedom. See, we got to get the Latin here. Um, I'm going to bore some of you, but some of you get buzzed over this because everybody's in a different boat. There is a Latin word, otium. Say it, otium. Ah, you know Latin. That means leisurely freedom. That's just getting to, that's the Saturday afternoon where you have nothing you have to do. And you get to do the things that you've needed to do that you haven't been able to do. Otium. I'm going to start using the word around my house. Becky, this Friday, I mean this Saturday, it's Odium Day at the Lanier House. Just keep that in mind. Let's don't make commitments so I can get done all those things I need to get done. He's living a life of Otium. And it's a wonderful life. Now, if you are a Latin scholar and you want to say the opposite of something, if I want the opposite um, uh, of something. In Latin, you use the, the word N-E-G. You stick it in front. Like negative is the opposite of positive. Uh, or negate. Uh, maybe it's the opposite of eight. <laughs> uh, you know, but N-E-G. So, Leo's upset because he's traded a life of odium for a life of Negodium. Neg odium. That's business. Do you know what word we get from that? Negotiate. He says, I used to be able to just oceate. Now I have to negotiate. I've got to do business. The Pope doesn't sit around and just serve 12 poor people for lunch and get to spend time one third of his day in study and prayer and one third of his day in worship. And one-third of his day serving? The Pope has to do business. And Gregory doesn't like it. And Gregory doesn't want it. But Gregory has no choice. Gregory becomes Pope. And he goes to work. And he goes to work hard. And he does so much, it's unbelievable. First thing he does is he cuts a deal with the Lombard invaders. No one else is able to negotiate with them except Gregory. Now, Gregory doesn't just negotiate. He takes an army out too. He sends an army out. He says, you want to fight? We'll fight. But otherwise, can we please come to some terms? So he negotiates with strength and also winds up paying quite a bit of the church's booty to the Lombards to get the Lombards to leave the countryside alone. But any measure of peace that's found with the Lombards during this time period is found because Gregory is the one out there doing it. No one else seems to be able to do anything with the Lombards at all. In addition to that, Gregory reorganizes the church's properties. Now think about it. The church at the time, you know, we tithe here. Basket goes around. 
you know, we put our money in or, or we send our money in or however we do it. But at that time, it wasn't, gee, put in your shekels. What a lot of people did is they would give property to the church. Or they would give, you know, so the church, by the time of, of Gregory, owns a lot of land. It's got a lot of farmland. It's got a lot, and, and there are farmers out there. And, and you've got people in the church who are, are in charge of seeing that the farmers farm the corn, right? And then ship a portion of the corn to the church so the church can distribute it. And you'd get to farm the land, but in return, rustici is, uh, uh, we get rustic from it, is the word, Latin word that was used for these guys that are farming the land. Now, the problem for the church was you had a bunch of corrupt people overseeing it. And these were corrupt people even within the church overseeing it that were making the farmers pay extra. Either because they wanted to pocket some of the corn or the money themselves or because they wanted to look really good in the Pope's eyes and the church's eyes because they brought in massive more amounts than they had been budgeted to bring in. It's almost a business. See what I mean? He's, so, so what the Pope does is he says, look, you've lost the ministry of this. These rustici, these farmers, these common laborers, you're ripping them off. Christ doesn't rip off people. And so he comes down really hard and actually starts issuing, uh, uh, like, uh, it's not a pay bill. What would it be? It, it, it's like, here's how much you're allowed to charge. Here's how much you're expected to pay. He's giving receipts to the guys. He reorganizes all of this stuff so that people are treated fairly. And it's got a huge thing. Now, recognize that, that what... Uh, 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 Gregory was a big reader of Augustine. You remember our Augustine class? And Augustine was the one who said, Hey, the church is loaded with good people and bad people. There are a bunch of evil, wicked people in the church, and we just might as well admit that. That's a viewpoint Gregory thought as well. And Gregory found even some of the bishops to be pretty corrupt. And so he says, as he's looking at the church properties, not only are y'all doing business wrong, and not only are you doing it unfair many times, but you yourselves are corrupt. And so he really tries to, to bring up the level of the bishops. He says, I want the bishops to be very different than they are. And I'm going to appoint new bishops that have a heart for God instead of these bishops that have a heart for themselves. And the bishops that are out there, he really worked hard to try and get them to change things. Um, he pushed the rule of Benedict, Gregory did, and said, this is what monasteries need to be doing. They need to be spending a third of their time serving and a third of their time uh, in worship and a third of their time in study. They, 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 you know, the rule of Benedict... Huge, and, and he starts pushing it for monasteries throughout Western uh, uh, Christianity. He changes, Gregory changes the liturgy and the worship. You ever heard of a Gregorian chant? Okay, that's this Gregory. And the musical historians will dispute over whether or not he actually came up with it, or whether he just encouraged it, or whether it was just named after him as, a, as an honorary thing. But there is no doubt that he actually got together a, a chorus of, of, uh, of folks and taught the chorus at the time. He, Gregory changed the liturgy, the way the church was worshiping, tried to make it more relevant, tried to make it more engaging for the people in his day. 
And as if this is not enough for the fella, he also goes after the plague. Now, this is a weird picture for me to put up there until I tell you how he went after it. Gregory decides the only way to conquer the plague is with uh, prayer. So he sets up for all seven areas of the church, seven major churches in Rome. He gets the church leaders to organize the people and they all at a set time set out and march in unison to come together praying and singing the whole way. And uh, depending on who you ask why, people will give you various reasons, but it seems almost... uh, uh, Astonishing to me that that is the same time period that inexplicably the plague leaves Rome, basically. Um, By the way, if you're dying from the bubonic plague, do you know one of the symptoms that you frequently have uh, uh, in the process of the disease? You sneeze. So Gregory put out a decree. You know what he said? When people sneeze, you need to pray over them. You know what you say? God bless you. That's Gregory. Okay? God bless you. Um, Now, uh, uh, what I really like about this guy as Pope is he not only sees these big picture things, these big problems with the properties or these big problems with the bishops or these big problems, but he sees the trees as well as the forest. And he sees the small things. Bless God bless you. Um, he, uh, uh, he sees the small things. Let me give you an example. Um, I've brought some of his writings today. And uh, um, there was a, a fellow who had been a monk and evidently a pretty good friend of the Pope's, uh, uh, of Gregory's in some way, shape, form, or fashion. His name was Venantius. And Venantius... Uh, left the the calling of the monastery and started living a different life. And so the Pope writes to him. And and when the Pope writes to him, he says, uh, this is the way it starts out. Uh, Gregory to Venantius. Many foolish men have supposed that if I were advanced to the rank of the Episcopate, if I became Pope, Uh, I wouldn't be addressing you and I wouldn't keep up with you by letter, uh, but uh, this isn't true. And he goes on to say, I know what you've done. And even though I'm doing all of these huge, massive things, don't think I've forgotten about you. And I don't approve of what you've done. And you really need to focus on your life. And you need to return to the monastery. Well, Vedantius doesn't return to the monastery. In fact, he gets married. And... um, uh, uh, marries another woman that uh, the Pope knew. And Gregory even wrote to her before they got married and said, you know, I know you and I know your womanly charms. Quit working them on this guy. He belongs back in the monastery. But they get married anyway and have two daughters, Barbara and Antonina, I believe were their names. And, uh, uh, and the Pope Gregory continues to write personal letters to these people to try and help them address their life. And ultimately, uh, 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 the fella dies, Venantius dies, and uh, uh, the girls grow up and they start to get married age. And the Pope even writes them and says, hey, I got the present you made me. They made him some little uh, like 
needlepoint or something. I don't know. I don't remember. But they'd made him some little crafts type gift and he writes him a thank you note and says, I understand you're getting close to Mary Jade. You know, please marry within the church. And if you come to Rome, you know, let me know. I'd love to see you. I love your mom and I love your dad. He's got this whole personal vignette. And it's not just that when he's got these others going. Now, this sounds like a guy who never got any sleep. I mean, you see the greatness here. I mean, if nothing else, just by the virtue of the fact he's doing everything at once. Here's the kicker. This whole time, he is sick as a dog. He's got what most doctors believe now to have been gout, at least, which was a killing disease at the time, a crippling disease. He's got digestive problems. He's got a horrendous health that requires him to sit down when he gives his sermons He's always, this picture of him in a chair is because that's where you found him. He had trouble walking. He's in horrible health and yet he just, he's the ever ready battery bunny that just keeps going and going and going. In the midst of all of this, his neg odium that he's conducting, he is a prolific writer. The guy writes, like I told you, his commentary on Job, it's the largest book that's been written really within Christianity probably up to that point in time. The thing's like volumes and volumes and volumes. It just goes on and on. and He writes more on Job than I could think about. And it's not like Job's just, you know, the, the really hot, burning, you know book of the Bible. Don't get me wrong. I enjoy the first chapter and a half where God and Satan are fighting and you read about all the misery coming on Job. And I enjoy the last couple of chapters where God sets everything straight. But those middle 40 or so are just boring. You know, this friend Eliezer comes and he just gives his long speech and you're just reading it and about halfway through you're thinking about other things. He writes a commentary on it. And I mean, goes into great detail. Let me tell you Gregory's views on the Bible for a minute. Gregory says that the Bible contains God's divine utterances. He says that, that uh, he, he gets frustrated in his commentary on Job because he says people want to know who wrote Job. And there's a big discussion, who wrote Job? He says, that's a stupid discussion. I can tell you who wrote Job. God. He says, the Holy Spirit's the author of Scripture. Who held the pen really isn't all that relevant. It's God who did the writing. Now, having said that, he does say he thinks a guy named Job actually wrote Job. But he he's first really shows his frustration that he even has to answer the question. He's big on the Bible being progressive revelation. He shows that, that God progressively reveals himself more and more and more within the Bible. So if you start with Genesis, the language, you know, God being forgetful with Noah, if you will. God remembers Noah and causes the waters to recede. Uh, The language, the revelation of God is more primitive as the people understood it. And then over time, God reveals more and more of himself and we get the fuller picture ultimately in Jesus Christ which is why it makes more sense than the things that you see before. If you look at the Old Testament, uh, um, uh, uh, Gregory was really big on using allegory to understand it. 
He thought allegory held the key. Let me give you a couple of examples of this, specifically with Ezekiel. Ezekiel, in the early first chapter, you'll see Ezekiel gets a scroll that's written on the inside and outside. Scrolls were always only written on the inside. That's unusual for Ezekiel. You see the same thing later, I'll add. He didn't. In Revelation, there's a two-sided scroll or scroll with writing on both sides. Very unusual. Usually a scroll is written only on one side. All right? What uh, Gregory says is the reason this was a two-sided scroll is allegory. Because the Old Testament is the scroll, but it's written on both sides because you've got the obvious side for everybody. But the other side of it is the New Testament is actually found in the Old Testament. If you understand the Old Testament allegorically properly, you'll see parts of the New Testament that are inside it. And that's his perspective on allegory. He goes on to say, for example, in Ezekiel. Can we, can you all see that okay? You remember Ezekiel sees a wheel in the middle of a wheel? You know that old spiritual song? Some of you maybe? Um, Okay, this is an artist's rendition. Ezekiel, I guess, is here. There's the wheel in the middle of the wheel. And then here's the creature with the four faces. And, uh, you know, what did Ezekiel see? But, you know, do we take it as a literal vision that he saw with a wheel inside the wheel? Gregory says what that is, is that is the Bible. And the wheel is the Old Testament, God's revelation. And the wheel in the middle of the wheel, again, is the New Testament that can be found in the Old Testament if you understand it allegorically. And so he says the reason you have the creatures with the four faces is because two of the faces belong in the Old Testament. That's the law and the prophets. And the other two faces are the New Testament, the gospel and acts, which is the history, and the writings of the apostles. And so those are the four faces. And, and he says, you know, when you get through all of this, ultimately his position on the Bible is God speaks to us with one purpose only, and that's to draw us out of ourselves, uh, to draw us to love of himself and, our, and, and of our neighbors. And so he's, he's big on scripture. Let me tell you briefly, Gregory and the church. Um, I told you that he was really big on the bishops, some of them being kind of scoundrels, and he wanted them to kick it up a notch, remember? He writes a book on that. He writes a book on how to be a better pastor. It's a fascinating book. I would love to to get a good copy of it and give it to to Lewis or some other people who um, uh, deal with people because he's got an entire section. It's it's kind of a four-part book, if you will, or four books into one. But one entire section deals with a psychological profile of people. And he categorizes people under 40 different psychologies and says, you minister to them differently depending on who they are. It's kind of cool. He says in, a, in his book, he says, the man called to be pastor. The first part of the book, or the first book is, what should a pastor be like? The man called to be pastor should live spiritually. Dying to all passions of the flesh. He should disregard worldly prosperity. He shouldn't be afraid of anybody. He should desire only inward wealth. He should not be led to covet things of others. Through a heart of compassion, he should be someone who quickly forgives. And he goes on and on and on. And says, this is what the bishops ought to be. This is what the pastors ought to be. This is what the people leading the church need to be like. He says, pastors should understand how easily sin passes itself off as virtue. Listen to this. I love this. This guy was a thinker. 
How easily sin can look like it's holiness. He says, think about stinginess. Some people are just downright stingy. They get to pass it off as frugality. And he says, it's not frugality. They're just stingy. Don't put some pious face on it. He says, and how about the people who just squander their money? People who just are wasteful of what they have. Well, they'll dress it up and say, look at me. I give so easily. It's not it. You're wasteful. You're not paying attention to what you have. Don't say, I'm so liberal in my giving. You're not liberal. Or how about this? It says, some people are just angry people who can't keep track of their temper. And these are people who, they stand up and they deliver a sermon that's anger. But they disguise it as, look at the zeal I have for God. It says, that's not zeal for God. You just lost your temper. No, don't sit there and say, you know, and I, I know lawyers this way. Lawyers, I have one lawyer who's a buddy of mine who yells at his staff. And he told me one time, he says, you know, I have to yell at him because I care that much that, that the client... I'm saying, you don't care that much that the client... You, you just lost your temper. Don't try to cloak it in this holiness. Or how about this? He says, there are a lot of people who are just lazy. But instead of saying lazy, they say, I'm just... This is loving kindness. I got to tell you, there's sometimes with my kids where I'm just lazy. Where the good dad in me would... You know, and, and you have to kick yourself in the pants to go pay attention to what they're doing. Because sometimes it's not uh, easy to be a parent. The easy things to be lazy and just figure, oh, I'm just loving and kind to my children. Well, sometimes you just got to do the, you know. Okay. Um, he says, uh, pastors should understand the need to preach differently to different people. He says, you admonish, for example, and he goes through all 40 categories of personality types and what have you. But he says, yeah, I pulled out a, an example. It, uh, admonish differently the simple and the insincere. Now, simple people, he says, need to understand that you know, these, these are the simple people. The simple people, and see if you know anybody like this, are the people who are so convicted about truth that they will always speak the truth. You never have to worry about them lying. But sometimes they do it in a way that's just horribly destructive. You know, Lewis will frequently quote to me the passage, speak the truth with love. Because the love part from Paul is important on speaking the truth. You can speak the truth to someone in a way that absolutely destroys them. You know, Jesus... And, and this is something that, that uh, Gregory uses as a scripture when he's explaining all of this. He goes to John 16, 12, where Jesus says, I've got a lot more that I need to tell you to his apostles. But right now you can't handle it. And so he says to the simple, you need to tell them that uh, uh, you know, just as it's... The simple need to understand that as they always avoid deceit advantageously, that's a good thing to do, don't deceive, that they should only speak the truth when it's advantageous. That doesn't mean that you just blather all the truth. There are sometimes where blathering the truth is going to hurt people and circumstances and situations needlessly. Use discretion, he was saying. And he says, now while you preach that to the simple... He says, to the insincere, you got to say something different. 
You got to tell them, first of all, that lying harms you, the liar. Deceiving harms the deceiver. He says, as lying always harms the liar, speaking truth sometimes can cause harm. So the insincere are admonished. Learn the weight of deception. Learn how heavy it is when you deceive. When you're deceived and you're afraid of being found out, sometimes you get pushed into more lies, and then you worry about getting caught. And ultimately, he says, there's no better defense than sincerity. There's really nothing easier to say than the truth. Just tell people the truth. Just tell the truth. So that's what he does. He has a heart for evangelism. He likes puns. Oh, I'm out of time. Uh, let me throw the, a couple of these out, and we'll finish up. Um, I, I love his... his uh, all the earthly things we lose by keeping can be kept by giving them away. Right, just think. There's a difference between an earthly building and a heavenly building. An earthly building is constructed by gathering together what you have to make it. A heavenly building's built by scattering what you have and sowing it. Nice turn of the phrase. Um, some use the things of this world as a steward for God so they may enjoy God. Others use God in such a manner as to try and enjoy the world. See the way he turned phrases? Great story. About, this is the Pope that sent the 40 Benedictine monks to England to convert the island of Britain. And ultimately, I maybe try and get into this when we look at Bede the Venerable and his history of the English-speaking people, but if you're an Anglo-Saxon or English heritage, our Christianity in, that came out of England is by and large because of the work of Gregory the Great. He had a heart for it. Points for home. Christianity is based on historical events. And we embrace our faith not because it's convenient. We don't embrace our faith because it's socially acceptable. The reason we should be Christians is because it's true. Jesus really died for us. This is true. We are in Him who is true. He's the true God and eternal life. Second, live to please God. This is a serious thing. Live to please God. We really should. Third, don't let poor health stop you from accomplishing things for God. I'm inspired every time I see Castell's mother in here. She comes in. She doesn't, she doesn't get in here easy, but she comes in. I'm inspired. This is a guy in horrible health who found ways. He might have to sit down to preach, but he didn't quit preaching. He might have been in pain, but he was going to be in pain whether he did something for God or not. So he... Went ahead and did stuff for God. Don't let poor health keep you from serving. Paul himself said he had a thorn in the flesh that God's power was made perfect in Paul's weakness because he learned not to be arrogant in what he did. It actually gave him a better perspective for the hurting that he hurt so he could minister better. Um, So that's our lesson. Would you pray with me? Our Father, it is my prayer that you will bless folks and uh, uh, take good care of them. And thank you for this lesson and the honor of being able to teach. Guide us as we go forward in this class. In Jesus we pray, amen.